The Bristol Agenda on BCFM. Hello and welcome to The Bristol Agenda on BCFM, as I said. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much to Steve Satan for providing the tunes for the last couple of hours. This is the show where Bristol sets the news agenda. Uh, my name is Tin Hinson. Priyanka is not with us this week. She's off celebrating her father's birthday. Many happy returns, Mr. Ravel. However, Priyanka's microphone is very capably filled by Rohan Roy. Hello, hello. Thank you, Tin. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here again. Thanks for thinking of me. Um, glad to be back talking about uh, something other than than GameStop as per last time. And uh, yeah, happy birthday to uh, Bristol Agenda's most loyal listener. Yeah, if you listen to all of our episodes in a row, we too will give you a birthday shout out. Uh, don't worry, it's not just a lad's takeover. We actually have some very important stories for you this week, and we promise there will be. Uh, actually, I think a majority of female voices behind the microphone on the interview side of things. So, uh, since we were last on air, the council has passed its £424 million budget for the year and published some details of its long-term spending plans yeah, we're going to be covering the budget in detail with a breakdown of what it all means, as well as some interviews with the key players. We will be looking at the proposed new waste processing plant in St Philip's that the planning committee, uh, the council's planning committee, are due to rule on this Thursday. We'll be speaking to the head of the nursery school that's just 50 yards away and hear why he is urging people to object to the plans. Um, but, you know, we're going to be situating that in a discussion of what exactly the plan is for Bristol's waste. It's got to go somewhere. And then we're going to be closing out the show. Uh, we have first part of a double delve into the a- African-Caribbean Assembly with Kiran Katra as part of our ongoing Demand a New Normal series. But before all of that, uh, it's important that we go through the Bristol Cables coronavirus briefing. Uh, so... This week, the government set out the roadmap for England's path out of lockdown. I'm sure you've heard a lot about this. Step one will begin in a week uh, with child care and educational establishments reopening and care home residents allowed one regular visitor. 29th of March, we'll see the return of the rule of six. Remember that. And then the... The eventual aim is for all legal restrictions on social contact to be removed by the summer. Uh, Yeah, and it's vital throughout this process that we uh, remain... uh, Sorry, I'm now quoting. It is vital that throughout this process we remain vigilant and do not allow our infection rate to go up once again. So that was Christina Gray, Bristol's Director for Public Health, um, in response to these announcements. And uh, on Bristol's case itself, Bristol has had uh, 40,000 surge tests being processed. Um, and the total cases of the Bristol variant has ridden, risen to 31. So the current rate of COVID in Bristol is 106 per 100,000 people, which is down by almost a third from the previous week. So, uh, you know, keep out of that lockdown. Uh, it is actually doing something. I know it can feel a little bit futile at times. The number of people with COVID in Bristol's hospitals has also fallen by a third in the last week. So there's 215 now compared to 140 people. Uh, 19 people did die with COVID in the last week, but that is down from 31 people who died with COVID in the previous week. A third of all adults in Bristol, North Somerset and South Gloucestershire had had a COVID jab. So in Bristol, 100,000 vaccinations have now been given, bringing the total to 27% of adults in Bristol. Um, and generally, the younger population uh, is more situated in Bristol than it is in the surrounding counties. Mm. Um, so on the other side of things, 66 people were given fixed penalty notices by Avon and Somerset Police for breaching COVID regulations last weekend. Do you think that's a big number or a small number? Uh, well, you know, I think, it is, I, think it's, I think it's quite small considering... Mm. I think there are more than 66 people that broke the the rules last week. (laughs) Well, that's true. And, I mean, you know, the city has a population of about half a million, including the outlying areas. So, you know, most people following the rules. But, you know, there is some 
breaking and bending of the rules as well. So, so, a vaccine trial to determine what happens when two different vaccines are given to the same patient has begun at Southmead Hospital. I think this is something that the government needs some answers on pretty quickly because um, various issues with logistics and the speed that they can produce these things does sort of mean that there's going to be a bit of mix and matching going on Mm -hmm. by the looks of it right we are going to play a song for you and then we're going to be back uh with discussion of the budget so uh relax into anderson pack and uh we'll be talking numbers afterwards Downtown. The people are rising. We thought it was a lockdown. Fifth, no, they about to start looting. Grab the gloves and masks. Watch out for them tanks when they rolling past. Shit. <laughs> there we go. Anderson Pack with lockdown. Uh, apologies for some of the bad language in there. That slipped into our playlist. Uh, but we'll be disciplining it next week. Uh, right, so this was the week uh, that the council passed its budget. We've got our financial crack team assembled to analyse it. But first, here is Mayor Marvin Rees, uh, and this is how he introduced it. Thanks very much, and I'm delighted to bring yet another uh, no-cuts budget to the council. It underpins our aspirations for Bristol as we plan our recovery from covid and the delivery over the medium to long term that will enable Bristol to build back uh, as a city of hope where no one is left behind. So our general fund net revenue budget outlines spending of £424 million on our key services. Uh, We also bring an ambitious capital programme that goes up to 2025 with a gross value of uh, around £900 million. Uh, With a strategic partner now in place, we're we're in an even stronger position Uh, to realise our capital ambitions uh, for Bristol. The principles that underpin what we do will remain um, inclusion and sustainability. Great. So you, Tin, have written an excellent piece in the cable about this budget meeting, um, which is fair to say was a bit controversial, um, which I think given this late stage of uh, lockdown is... um, it's an interesting time for, for council meetings. It seems the public are more interested than ever. Um, but your article has also pointed out how the, the meeting itself pointed towards some larger national questions as well as our favourite topic here, trouble in the Labour Party. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's interesting in a way. You, I mean, you say it's controversial. In a way, that was one of the things that there was a bit of a sort of disjunct about. Like, it is... Um, We've got elections coming up in May. Uh, There was lots of sound and fury in the council chamber. And, you know, as you'd alluded to, the debate did have something of the Hansworth Parish Council about it. However, when you actually sort of delve into the figures, there were, I think, seven uh, different amendments that the different parties put forward. So uh, Labour is the the ruling party and Bristol City Council at the moment and, you know, the other ones, so you've got the Lib Dems, Tories, and you've got the Greens, and they all put through amendments, but even if all of their different amendments had passed, the actual £424 million budget, 99% of it would have remained the same. Um, and Can I ask why, why that is? Why is 99% the same regardless of uh, parties and whatever else? Mm. Well, the answer basically is 12 years of austerity. Um, So what that means is the the amount... You've got to understand that the Bristol City Council gets its most of its funding either from council tax, but then more than half of it comes from central government. And the amount that it gets from central government has been squeezed and squeezed and squeezed for the last 12 years. And also there's been lots of rules saying, you know, you have to reserve a certain amount to pay for, I know, for instance, adult social care. Um, You're only allowed to use this pot of money for housing and not this pot of money, blah, 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 blah. So it basically means on the one hand, the amount of money that the council 
got coming in is being really squeezed right down to the minimum. On the other hand, in terms of the services that the council has to deliver, a lot of those are what we call statutorily mandated, which is a challenge for me to say. But basically what it means is, by law, they have to, for example, provide school places. They have to provide special educational uh, needs places. You know, recently this has been the subject of a court order that they've lost. Yeah. So you put those factors together and it means the amount of wiggle room that councillors have got is very limited and you see you know one of the budget amendments was literally about uh the there was one put forward by the conservatives and they wanted to make uh car parking free in blaze castle right which you know with all due respect to the sort of residents of uh westbury on trim is not the biggest issue in the world. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it almost seems a bit farcical that the, uh, a large city in the UK is electing members from different parties on different platforms to essentially decide uh, how to allocate a very small amount of money. Mm. You know, it's, it's an effect on democracy, it seems to me. Yeah, um, so, you know, what the... I mean, yeah, you're totally right. What the councillors would argue and you know certainly what the mayor was arguing there uh, is that competence is an issue so you know within that there's still loads of wiggle room for you know for instance do they uh, decide to sort of pay their executives loads of money do they subcontract services out and you know so there is still there are still lots of decisions to be made but you're right on the sort of key aspects of sort of day-to-day spending or or the big picture aspects of day-to-day spending there's precious little for them to disagree about that that that's my opinion of it anyway um i'm sure if you asked any councillor they would (laughs) disagree because of course they're up for election um in in may so yeah i mean so what we're going to do next is we're going to play a couple of clips because there were some Uh, amendments put forward and the most controversial one of these was proposed by the green party but it was actually seconded uh, by nicola bowden jones who's a labor councillor as well and this relates to um, the rent on council homes Uh, so we're going to play those interviews that i recorded earlier today and then we're going to delve into some of the areas that still are controversial and that the, there is still sort of disputes about so first of all here's carla denya who is the green party's um uh, councillor for clifton down Hi, carla. so first of all this was a 420 million pound budget i think the official analysis suggested that 99 percent of day-to-day spending was uncontested um so with that in mind, what was the Green Party's sort of overall view of this council budget? Well, the budget wouldn't have been so bad. It it does more or less keep things ticking over for another year. But frankly, to still be in that treading water mode after five years that the administration's been in, and, and frankly, five years often of inaction and, and delays, is, is, is quite disappointing to us. Failing to properly get to grips with the climate crisis and funding the solutions properly, ditto with tr- the transport problems and Bristol's housing crisis. You know, it it wasn't terrible, but it really felt like a business-as-usual budget that failed to tackle the big problems facing the city. And that's why, I know we'll be going on to this in a minute, that's why the Green Party councillors put forward three amendments to try to improve that level of ambition. It's So it's disappointing that they were voted down. Okay, yeah, as as you say, we'll, we'll sort of get on to the sort of specifics that you would have done differently now. Uh, so you had a proposal to raise rents on council houses, a risky thing to do maybe in an election year. Uh, why, why did you think that was necessary? Well, my proposal was about unlocking millions of pounds for upgrading and building new council homes. 
specifically, it would have boosted the council housing budget by 8.5 million over the next five years and 51 million over the course of the council's 30-year housing plan. That would have provided critical funding for repairs, for insulating to make sure people have warmer, more comfortable homes, and really importantly, leveraging borrowing of much larger sums of money from the government to build more council homes. Mm. And yes, it would have done that by increasing council rents by 1% plus inflation. But as they were cut over several preceding years, that actually amounts to only an 87 pence per week increase from where they were in 2015 when I was elected. Mm. How, how do council tenants feel about this? Have you done any consultation? Yeah, I mean, I do understand concerns about putting up rent, of course. Um, But the thing is that for, uh, and this has been confirmed by council officers who've been crunching the numbers, for the majority of council tenants, their rent is paid by housing benefits or universal credit, which is therefore paid by central government. Hmm. Um, And we've heard from some council tenants that do pay their own rent uh, that they would welcome this rise if it meant getting repairs done sooner and insulating their homes done quicker, because ultimately that will benefit them because it will bring Hmm. lower energy bills. It'll it'll result in more money in their pocket in the long run. So, you, yeah, you see this as investing in council houses as opposed to sort of letting them tick over. I mean, just Absolutely. on... Absolutely. And also, um, obviously, if there was another way that the council could fund these improvements, I'd, I'd go for it. But um, mm. a, a, an important technicality is that council, because of rules set by national government, council house funding is ring-fenced, which means that the council can't take funds from other parts of the budget to pay for council homes. It has to be all within the council housing budget. Mm. Just on a a quick point there, actually, you stated then that the majority of council tenants have at least some of their rent paid by either housing benefit or universal credit. I remember in the budget meeting that that assertion was disputed um do you, do you have a sort of explanation for the you know the uh, the differing views on yes. that yes uh well um yeah without mincing my words i think that was a lie to be perfectly honest um the leader of the green councillor group raised a point of order at that point because um the labor speaker implied that we had made up those numbers but actually they had the, the numbers the estimate of 50 to 65 percent of council tenants um getting their rent from benefits is a statistic provided by the council itself so it's not it's not a it's not an opinion or a or a sort of finger in the air guess it is it is the official Mm. statistics from the council so i believe the green party had uh three other amendments in two uh, two, sorry three three in total so could you uh, what else would the greens have done differently if this was their budget Mm. so the two other amendments we had in this year um one is to develop a workplace parking levy which is a charge on corporate workplace parking in the city centre which would raise tens of millions of pounds that are then used to fund transport improvements in the city. So this idea takes inspiration from Nottingham, which have successfully used the revenue generated by their workplace parking scheme to double the size of their tram network and fund other transport improvements generating, I think it's over 40 million pounds over five years. Um, And this amendment that we propose this year follows a a successful green amendment that passed last year, which was to develop the initial feasibility study for this work. So this amendment was then to take it to the next stage. And um, schemes like this, workplace parking levies, Obviously, you have to you have to put a put a reasonable amount of effort into designing them to suit the local area, and you need to have exemptions for, for example, workers with disabilities who who have to drive. But part of why I get really excited about the idea of a workplace parking levy, even though it sounds rather dull, uh, is that as well as um, make you know funding better public transport discouraging driving so it helps tackle climate change air pollution and congestion is also Mm. a progressive measure because if you think about it 
most workplaces in the city centre don't have enough space for a car park where all workers can park. So I think the majority of them just have a few spaces and they tend to go to the most senior members of staff. It tends to be a perk for their best paid staff. So mm. currently, um, workplace parking in the city centre is in most companies a regressive measure. It gives a benefit to people that are already earning the most and it I'm, I'm sure that the majority of those companies don't provide free bus tickets to their other workers. Uh, yeah, so, so by uh, charging uh, um, that, that that helps to to switch the balance. Fair enough. Um, so in the administration's response to that, I mean, uh, my reading of it was that they seemed sort of amenable to the idea, and as you said, you uh, you guys had a successful amendment pushed on passed on this in the past. Um, obviously, this time round, the Greens amendment didn't pass. Uh, do you think that in the long run, um, people listening to this should expect this to come in anyway at some point? What's your sort of take? Well, on I hope so. Um, it seemed like Labour's response to our amendment is we don't need to vote for this because we're doing it anyway. But mm. I mean, you could spin that the other way. You could say we're doing this, so let's vote for it and 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 you know get a, polit sure. a cross party political mandate for pushing it through. So I don't really understand why they chose to vote against it, um, and I'm a little mm. bit worried. You know, I hope I'm proven wrong, but I'm a little bit worried that mm. um, that they are saying they're doing it, but that it's perhaps going slower than we would like. Sure. Well, we, we will keep an eye on that one in that case. Yeah. Uh, so the final amendment, I believe, was brought by Councillor Fodor and related to community infrastructure levy, which is um, a sort of tax on uh, big development, a charge uh, levied on big developments in the city. Um, and since the budget, we've, uh, well, as part of the budget, there was news of £25 million being uh, designated for improvements to well Castle Park and um, the uh, developments along the Froome by the M32 there. So, uh, so what would have been different under the Greens proposal? Um, on the Castle Park thing, quickly, I don't have access to the full details of that because all I've seen so far is the news coverage. But from what I mm -hmm. understand, that isn't a firm agreement. That was the administration saying we are considering doing something, but I don't think it's it's committed sure, it's, funds it's yet. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, pending a business plan. And things, yeah, so. so our proposal was to um, give uh, parks and local lo local neighbourhood schemes a much needed cash boost of about 12 and a half million over four years and that was using a particular pot of money called the community infrastructure levy as you mentioned um which and, and in particular it's the part of that fund which had previously been allocated to improvements linked to the temple quarter arena but since that arena was cancelled by the mayor that 12 and a half million had just been sitting in a bank account unallocated. Um, and something that's really important yeah. to draw out here because um, this was misrepresented actually in, in one of the speeches that one of the Labour councillors gave is that this isn't taking funding from any existing funded projects. There are lots of different pots of community infrastructure levy or SIL. Um, and some of them are allocated, and we are, we were not proposing to touch those at all. This was specifically targeting the twelve and a half million that was sitting in a bank account with no claims against it. And so, rather than having it sitting in a bank account doing nothing, we wanted to spend half of it on upgrading Bristol's parks and green spaces, making them more accessible with better paths. Um, putting more um, recycling bins. We get a lot of people saying, "Why are there no recycling bins in parks?" and um, providing more water and electricity connections so that, um, uh, you know, coffee trucks and things like that can plug in without having to mm. run diesel generators in the park. And then the other half of the funding uh, was to promote more livable neighbourhoods. So making local mm. streets more livable for people that walk, cycle, use mobility aids, um, dealing mm. with rat running and dangerous parking and generally make making them more pleasant and um, more prosperous places for people to live and shop and travel and for local mm. businesses. So, Carla, we, as I mentioned before, you are in an election year. You are the councillor that brought in the climate emergency declaration. Uh, so 
I take it that adapting to climate change, mitigating climate change is going to be the centerpiece of how the Greens are going to be attacking this election. So could you briefly flesh out for our listeners, what is your pitch to the city this time around? Well, for the last four years, Bristol has been um, represented by 11 Green Party councillors on Bristol City Council. And over that time, we have always tried to be a good influence on the council administration, pulling them in a more progressive direction, yes, on climate, but also on social justice and a range of other issues. Um, and sometimes we've been successful and we've, pers- we've persuaded the administration to come with us on things like the climate emergency declaration, also like uh, my colleague Councillor Cleo Lake's motion on reparations, which is coming to council tomorrow. Um, But there are other areas where we've been unsuccessful in persuading the other parties to come with us. And so this may voters have the chance to elect a new Green Mayor and to increase the number of green councillors in the chamber. And with more representation in the chamber, we can do more to bring those innovative, progressive ideas um, to the fore. Grant, and so an example of something that would happen under a green administration that isn't happening at the moment? Ah, I'm hesitant to um, give any spoilers to our manifesto because I know that our mayoral candidate, Sandy Horriven, is um, planning some policy launches over the next few weeks. And I don't want to spoil those surprises, but um, watch this space and do invite him on. I'm sure he'll be very happy to talk to you. That's uh, a very good way of not answering the question. Sorry, I hate I hate advising the que- uh, question, but in this case, I really don't want to ruin a nice surprise that they're working up towards so yeah (laughs) fantastic that was a that was a really interesting interview there um and i kind of want to get now into some of those issues that were discussed uh in the budget but also what what the big issues are Mm. that the council can work with over the next budget after the after the may elections um i mean there's there's a few big issues obviously coming out of coronavirus we're going to be talking growth in the city how does how does the economy of bristol recover how do how do people get back in track what's what what are your thoughts there well this is it i mean that it was a slightly strange budget this year there was about 80 million pounds extra that's been transferred from central government to cover some of the direct costs that bristol city council has uh, suffered because of covid obviously there's been big national programs the you know the furlough scheme which has been centrally government funded but also various businesses have got grants and loans that people expect to turn into grants and um, self-employed people have had grants and things like that so there's a whole sort of patchwork of things and I think it's something that economists are um, have different views about some people expect a big corona crash that i think is probably the central you know estimate that people have on the other hand there are some strange things happening for instance you know um, house prices have continued to go up and one explanation that's being given for that is that for certain people this is a period when they've been able to save a lot of money because they're not going out to shops you know certain businesses certain self-employed people have got grants and things um certain businesses like supermarkets have um enjoyed sort of windfall profits because people have sort of stocked up and you know there's been fewer shops open so they've been sort of funneled in i and- one have been looking forward to my weekly aldi shops <laughs> I know, yeah, I'm looking forlornly up and down that central <laughs> aisle being like, do I really need a pressure washer? <laughs> but I mean, well, I think the, the other one other big thing missing out from this is, you know, by far the biggest government programme during the coronavirus, as it has been for the last 10 years mm. after the financial crisis, has been quantitative easing. Mm. And that is, in essence, the government pumping in vast amounts of money into mm. uh, the assets of the economy. And, you know, what are the assets... Uh, assets are owned by rich people you know it's it's not a Mm. you know it may well be stabilizing the economy but it is sort of at the cost of increasing inequality it's certainly not neutral um yeah and as you say it it, yeah it does sort of favor one sector over the other but anyway so in concrete terms in terms of how bristol recovers from 
coronavirus. I'd say it's from my reading of it. I think it's pretty unsure at the moment. You know how exactly that's going to look. Yeah. Um, in the long term, the you know Bristol in a way is pretty lucky out of cities in that its population is growing. Was uh, I think projected to grow by a hundred thousand over the next uh, ten or fifteen years. So uh, about 3,000 new homes are going to be built every year in that period. That's Well, that's the projection anyway. So for the council, that means, well, they get more of this community infrastructure levy that um, Carla was talking about in the budget there, uh, sorry, in the interview there. Uh, there's also obviously a growing base of people paying council tax, more people there, you know, supporting businesses for business rates yeah. and things like that. And this leads us on quite nicely to uh, another big issue, which is not just degrowth, but the, the, the city itself, as, as well as the country, mm. have committed to net carbon neutrality by 2030. Mm. These are pretty big issues. Marvin touched on it in his interview earlier. Obviously, Cara's deeply interested in this. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, this is a very, very interesting uh, one because the sort of elephant in the room, well, it's not an elephant in the room because we've talked about it a lot, but uh, the austerity thing really does limit the latitude that that uh, the council has for doing big projects. You know, you don't see it so much in Bristol because the city was bombed so badly during the Second World War, but if you go up north, you go to Manchester, you go to Bradford, you go to Leeds, uh, you go up into Scotland, uh, all of these places, you see buildings that are marked with plaques built by the manchester corporation or whatever it was all government local councils building the infrastructure of the city that's not possible for councils anymore i mean it would be possible but the sort of laws that central government sets down mean that it's not possible so when you want to do a big transformational thing like building lots of council houses or going to carbon neutrality what Bristol City Council has decided it has to do is partner with private companies. So it's gone um, in, it's launched the City Leap program, is mm. what it's called. And this is a billion pound program uh, that is looking to sort of partner up with the likes of Eon or uh, there's several different companies in the running for it for big, big contracts. And it raises all sorts of questions. It's, it certainly does. It, it's. Um to what extent can a, 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 a decarbonisation process happen with some of the key players in the private industry, industry mm. who, who are involved in that? Um, certainly a mockery of a, a great leap. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. I mean, you you can see sort of pragmatically why um, sort of councillors would have to do it. So, for instance, you know, you have somebody like Paul Smith, who was the outgoing um, housing um cabinet member uh who you know is very left-wing socialist guy but he was part of an administration that uh launched gorham homes which is the the council's very own sort of housing developer so that was a bit of a way of swerving the regulations that councils can't build them directly i think it was a pragmatic decision that like mm -hmm. if you want to get things done this is the nature of it in the sort of modern, you know, in the British neoliberal economy. Um, we said we'd assembled the budget crack team and uh, we might be a victim of our own success. We're going over time at the moment. So what I'm going to do is uh, we're going to bring this topic to an abrupt screeching close uh, and then and we're going to cover something that's very important, very timely, uh, because the... Uh, meeting to discuss it is on Thursday um, and uh, and yeah people need to have their say online so this is Simon Holmes uh, who is the head of St Philip's Marsh uh, Nursery School The Grindon say that the site they want to build will help uh, Bristol to recycle commercial waste by packing it up in the area uh, Simon what is your objection to the building of this waste transfer facility uh, in St Phillips? Well, our main objection is that it's less than 50 metres from a nursery school, which um, is in an area of 
already poor air quality mm. and there is also a lot of issues with um, traffic and road safety. Mm. So the proposal, I think, is talking about over 100 heavy lorries a day leaving the plant and coming in. They're narrow streets. Uh, there's no safe place for the children to cross the road. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> and it's literally directly opposite where the lorries will be coming in and out. Obviously, the amount of traffic coming in and out is going to increase the air pollution. Um, and none of this seems to really be sort of taken account of in the um, planning application. Well, indeed. I mean, in, in the application, Grundon notes that the site is over 500 metres from the nearest home and that it is in a designated industrial area. So their argument seems to be not that the waste transfer station is in the wrong place, uh, but rather that your nursery is in the wrong place. Well, yeah, and this this is something that we've ha had for many years. Um, but the fact is, the nursery's been here since 1926. Mm. And there was, this was an area of high housing, and there was always a very strong community. Now, the recent, you know, de you know, recent developments of kind of like industrial use around here are, are, are temporary and haven't been here for a very long time. And the, the plan for the future around the Temple Quarter Development Zone is, is, is for, you know, mixed housing and more green spaces. The university's just built, building, a, you know, a huge new site just down the road. I mean, there's plans for a school on the <coughs> opposite side of Silverthorne Lane. I mean, this is a, an area of, of regeneration. So I don't see how a waste transfer station bringing in hundreds of tonnes of waste and hundreds of heavy goods vehicles into the middle of the city mm. in an area of already high air pollution is a good idea. Mm. And it, there seems to be a massive disconnect between this development and what Bristol City Council says is its vision for the area but also what it says is its priority in Lawrence Hill Ward, which, which we sit in, which has got the highest level of deprivation in the city, the worst health outcomes for children, the highest levels of asthma, in childhood asthma. Um, and it just seems, uh, you can't help thinking, well, this development wouldn't be allowed anywhere else in the city. Mm. Uh, I mean, and somehow it doesn't seem to matter for the children in this area because it's not just the nursery school either; it's the surrounding communities, which, mm. which you know, the well, lorries will have to drive through. <laughs> well, in, in their application, uh, Grundon, uh, while acknowledging that uh, I think fifty thousand tons of waste will be processed uh, per year there, and that the site will operate twenty-four hours a day. They say their assessments show that there's negligible extra noise um, going to be generated for the primary school and uh, sorry for the nursery school and uh, and that in any case the the area is not is excluded from being an air quality management zone. I mean, just in sort of concrete terms, what impact do you sort of fear? Uh, for your school and for the the children. Well, I see you know increased traffic, increased noise, increased risk of you know accidents. Hmm. Um, there's the, the issue of odour as well. I think everybody's seen what's happened to Avonmouth hmm. with the issues of flies, seagulls hmm. again, which can be quite a, a, a big problem. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a general deterioration, basically in the in the quality of the environment in St Philip's Marsh. Okay, uh, I mean, you know, nonetheless. So um, we're just going to come out of that a little bit early because we are uh, tight on time today. I mean, I 
I looked at this planning application earlier today. Mm. Uh, there were dozens and dozens and dozens of comments. Uh, all of the ones that I saw were people against it. Uh, there are obvious implications for in terms of air quality, noise pollution, um, traffic, this sort of thing. On the one, uh, on the other hand, our waste does have to go somewhere. I mean, how, how do we solve this conundrum? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have the answer, but I think one of the issues is, I think most people would be pretty clear that a nursery next to a, a waste facility is is not the way forward. The mm. question then is, well, which one is in the wrong place? And, and as as your man there was saying, the nursery's been there for a long time, so mm. I think that I think that's fair enough. But at the same time, if it's an industrial estate, is it more is it more appropriate that that's also got a waste facility in it? Or yeah, well, I mean, it, it, uh, Simon said that the nursery had been there for 124 years, which is a long time. But on the other hand, and you, and you know, he referred to the estate only sort of temporarily being used industrially and that's mm, that's mm. true again it's after the bombing in the war uh you know that area was all housing beforehand st phillips was yeah, but yeah yeah and it's still zoned as housing some of it uh but for the last sort of 70 years it's been light industrial and uh yeah it's it i mean this again comes back to some of the questions that we were talking about in terms of the budget in that these there are huge decisions being made at the moment about the future of the city kind of you know a lot of cities that are in decline have got difficult decisions because they're in decline bristol has difficult decisions because it's growing the you know the enormous number of buildings being of new homes being built in bristol at the moment we you know you just got to sort of cycle around the city and see dozens and dozens of cranes up i mean well that's the thing people, people, i mean and you me most people in the city are in favor of development but then when it encroaches on yourself everyone becomes a um what's it a nimby you mm. know it it is one of these tricky uh and it's perfectly reasonable to be a nimby as well is, because yeah, yeah, like yeah. you know we can all sort of sit back abstractly and be like, well, you know, they would say that, like, no one wants a waste plant near them. But it's like, yeah, damn right. Like, if, you know, this is a nursery with sort of one, two, three-year-olds Serving there, the community. Locally. Serving the community, yeah, serving people presumably who work in that area. Yeah. Um, so it seems to me that it's just sort of, obvious almost you know leaving aside this particular development but already the air quality down there is very bad and the only reason that it's legal is because it's exempt because it's an industrial area well you know it may be an industrial area but there's you know there's a nursery in it and there's there's homes nearby to it so yeah exactly so is the other case well actually what we need to do is 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 move industrial zones as the city grows mm. into the periphery, allowing the city centre to become more uh, cleaner air, mm. more housing, more community-based living. Mm. I'm not sure. Well, uh, do text in, do get in touch with us if you have any views on this topic. You're listening to the Bristol Agenda on BCFM. We are having a budget special today we love to talk numbers on the bristol agenda uh so we had an interview with carla denya uh who submitted uh, a proposal uh, an amendment to the budget uh, i also recorded an interview with nicola bowden jones who was the sort of intriguing thing about this is that she is a labor councillor but she uh, submitted an amendment against the administration so we're going to listen to that now and then we'll spend the final five minutes of the show speculating on the political implications of some of these decisions okay so the mayor proposed freezing rents for council tenants uh, you didn't think that this was a good idea why is that um, I think it's really important that we look after our council tenants and make sure they have decent homes. Um, and that inclu- includes making sure that we can do the repairs, that we can also carry out improvements, such as making sure that all the homes have insulation. And also we've got uh, a stock to maintain. 
So, you know, the quality of housing depletes over time and we need to be in a position to, to rebuild um, when we need to. So for those reasons, I don't think it's a, it's a good idea. Okay, and what exactly were you proposing to do instead then? Well, I was proposing that we um, we raised the rents to uh, 1.5% in line with the government's formulas, so that um, which so, sorry that means that for those people that pay about 80 pound a week, that their rents would be increased by 1 pound 20. Um, and we know that the majority of council tenants won't be affected because they're in receipt of housing benefits. So um, that's, that was my proposal, really. Okay. Um, would this not load a big burden on council tenants just as they're having to deal with coronavirus uh, and, you know, we are expecting an economic downturn, according to some economists, this year? Well, the council made a decision to increase council tax by 5%. And so it's the same um, benefit system that would cover both of these. So housing benefit is paid on the same system that covers council tax benefits. So, you know, it, it wouldn't put um, council tenants at any more of a disadvantage. Okay. Uh, so the mayor says that this freeze will cost, uh, well, disputed figures, but just over a million pounds a year in lost revenue. I understand that you say that it has a much bigger impact than that on the council's ability to fund new council houses. How exactly does that work and what's the scale of the impact that we're talking about here? Um, yeah, I'm not sure where the, the mayor's figures come from, really, because the council's own report says that actually the amount is 8.5 million over the next five years. Um, so the, the revenue that um, comes from housing, uh, from rent, um, helps to generate borrowing capacity. And um, this will enable us, according to the council's business plan, to uh, borrow up to £100 million. Pounds. Um, and we have at the moment um, a bill for 500 million to retrofit um, all the homes to make sure that they meet our carbon reduction targets. Okay. Uh, um, one final thing. So in your speech seconding this amendment, uh, you said that uh, your fellow councillors have been threatened with deselection if they supported your budget proposal. But as I understood it, in the Labour Party, local members get to select their candidates for council elections. So, uh, so how does that work then? Yeah, so um, I think when you look at the, the voting results, it was a really difficult decision for the councillors and you could see they were wavering. Um, but what happens is uh, local branch members select the candidates and once uh, um, elected onto the council, we come under the control of a whip. Um, and so if you vote against the whip, you get punished. Um, and so that means that you're automatically ineligible to stand for council. Okay. And so just to be clear, your statements there had nothing to do with uh, some of the other controversies that we've heard about recently in the local Labour Party um, with the sort of vying for uh, power between local members and the uh, administrators of the party. No, that's nothing to do with me then. Grant. All right. Thank you very much to speaking to us again. There we go. Uh, that sounds painful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you fancy being a councillor, being subject to the whip? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think um, it's not for me personally to, mm. to moderate myself for the well, each to their own. We won't kink shame on here, especially <laughs> not to our councillors. Um, so this is uh, interesting. This is the sort of political dimensions of the budget and how uh, this is all going to sort of play out in the upcoming election. So, yeah. uh, so what do you think the key issues on the perhaps virtual doorstep are going to be? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's an interesting question, and I think locally there are always a number of things local concerns that come into play i think another thing which is always important to remember and, and this is what kind of political scientists and what are always saying is that council elections are often a reflection of moods 
within national politics. And I think in that context, it's pertinent to ask where the small M momentum is in the country behind political forces. Um, and, you know, from what I see is, is the current position of Labour nationally and perhaps locally with the stepping down of people like Nicola Bowden-Jones um, and uh, Paul Smith. Paul Smith, yeah. I mean, there's lots of outgoing councillors yeah. this time around. Yeah. And, and, and some controversy around council selections is, you know, the Labour Party committing to... Uh, <laughs> to, to its one long-standing commitment to internal civil war. Um, but also, meanwhile, uh, with a kind of scaling back of its ambition, a scaling back of ideas to a point where it, maybe it will appeal to the, the bankers, but it's not going to appeal so much to the kind of campaigning groups that you've seen now in the last five years, the kind of snappy videos that do the do the numbers on social media. So where is that energy going to go in a in a metropolitan city like Bristol, I think the Greens are well placed to capitalise on some of it. Certainly, I think also you're maybe going to see a bit more of a depressed vote. Um, but I also think the Conservatives are in a good position politically. I mean, we might not think that you know managing the COVID pandemic has been fa- fantastically well done, but I think their branding of themselves as ending austerity. I think uh, particularly Rishi Sunak's kind of overall commitment as a young BAME guy who's willing to spend a bit more money and he's going to, and, and, and is essentially loosening the fiscal um, terms that was set by George Osborne in 2010. I think that's going to be, I think that's going to really rile up the conservative base and maybe that won't have an impact so much in the city centre at Bristol, but mm. I think the surrounding regions, I think it's going to be an interesting, um, it's going to be an interesting look snapshot of the country and well i mean the, that um sort of core periphery language or that split uh was very explicit in the actual budget debate and the sort of conservative response to it mm-hmm. uh they kept sort of hammering away and away at that point they their portrayal was that the mayor the administration only cares about the city center what about the suburbs what about the sort of outlying areas um so it'd be interesting to, because of course within you know Britain's sort of national electoral geography, uh, the Labour's vote has become very sort of concentrated in cities, and yeah. uh, the Conservatives basically hold nearly all the rural seats. I think in the southwest, uh, Labour uh, there's about sort of fifty-five seats, and Labour only have about six of them. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and they are the seats with with bigger populations but mm. um it's it's younger and, and i think that's why i mean you know i don't see much of a turn happening within the conservative held areas but those places where labor currently holds i think i wouldn't be complacent if i were them mm. that uh they weren't giving up some of the energy some of the momentum some of the ideas to other insurgent parties mm. and yeah and of course the big sort of coronavirus question as well i mean that something as big as that has to have uh, an impact you know, even just in the sort of pragmatic way that, you know, the get out the vote thing normally happens. Absolutely. Right. So uh, regular listeners may have noticed that we have run out of time for our regular demand a new normal slot with Kieran Catra. We have a really good episode recorded. It's in the bank is with the youth chapter of the African Caribbean Assembly. Kieran discusses base building autonomy. Uh, there's a nod to the question of reparations and lots of comments on how all the different people working on this can actually work together. What we're going to do is we're going to put that up online um, and then we're going to play it out on the radio next week as well. So um, to get that, you need to go to uh, the BCFM uh, Facebook page uh, and you can look at it on Twitter as well and we'll see if we can get it put up as a podcast as well. So... That was the end of our budget special. Uh, I promise next week we'll have something, I don't know, without money in it or something. Uh, You've been listening to The Brittle Agenda on BCFM with me, Tin Hinson and Rohan Roy. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.